he had gone too far. Said too much. Taken it to an extreme. They couldn't handle it anymore, so they grabbed stones. They dragged him outside of town on the outskirts. And they began to throw rocks at him and stones until he breathed his last. And the scriptures say he fell asleep. And then the scripture says, and Saul approved of their killing him. This here in Acts chapter 8 is the first time that someone has lost their life for giving their life to Jesus and telling others about it. His name is Stephen, and he went too far. He said too much. They couldn't handle it. They literally, the scriptures say, gnashed their teeth, covered their ears, grabbed stones, and pummeled him blow by blow by blow. And they looked at another young man named Saul, and he nodded in approval. And then the scriptures say, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, this was the young man murdered, and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul, he began to destroy the church, going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. This was visceral. This was physical. This has the beginning of an uprising that could lead to genocide. How do you think in this moment it felt for this young man named Saul? Awesome. I think it felt awesome to have that kind of power, to have that kind of authority, to have done what you thought was the right thing or felt right in the moment, and to have the kind of herd mentality where everyone uh, seems to agree, this man needs to die, let's kill him. I think in the moment it probably felt great for Saul. Until another moment. Flash of light, the force of gravity, and this young man, Saul, finds himself lying flat on his back, staring up in a blinding light, and he hears the words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He couldn't see for three days beyond that. He couldn't eat. He couldn't drink. He had to be led by hand into the very town, Damascus, where he was breathing murderous threats to take all of these Jesus followers down. And then the dots connect. What he was doing with great zeal and with approval and authority and what most likely felt awesome 
He connects the dot to the very God that he had given his life to, that he had studied and was erudite and was completely fastidious in, in dotting every I and crossing every T. He thought he was in perfect standing with the living God only to find that he was on the wrong team and was cutting out the movement of God at its knees. Now how do you think he felt? Like one who just goes and slides down to the ground in a bathroom stall. Thinking this is what I've been doing, this is what I've been giving my life to, it's all for naught. How do you think Paul felt then in that moment as his name was later changed from Saul to Paul? I think he carried a deep shame. I think he had what must have felt like an irrecoverable, unsurmountable level of, of guilt to know that he you know when when we read the Bible, I think it's, it's really hard to, to really let our minds imagine what that would be like to have been a real human being really in that moment. You know, there's so much research now that says things like the body keeps score of what trauma does, of what something so traumatic like that moment of Paul nodding approval, literally the scriptures say that they took their cloaks, the people who stoned this young man, Stephen, and they laid them down at Paul's feet. And so every time Paul sees a robe, every time he sees somebody lay something down, I wonder if it just takes him back to that moment of a limp body and a man crying out his last breath at his approval. Could you imagine carrying that level of shame? That's a bathroom stall you never want to come out of. And we see Saul, later named Paul, trying to work it out. We see these kind of like autobiographical moments where his story is kind of referenced and where he's having to kind of come to grips with the depths of his, his own sin. In Acts, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, he writes this. He says, verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles. See, he went on to have a friend reach out a hand underneath the bathroom stall. His name was Barnabas. Barnabas literally pulled him out brought him to the other apostles and said, hey, look, I'm going to vouch for this guy. He's with me, and he's met Jesus, and he's okay. And Paul ends up becoming, in effect, the second most important figure in the second chapter of the Bible, what we call the New Testament. And yet he somehow has to defend himself. People are still scared of him. Some of them don't quite buy that it's legit, and he has to kind of defend his credibility now as an apostle, as one of the leaders in this upstart, rising church of Jesus' followers, and he says, I know, I know, I'm the least of the apostles, and get this, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. 
Why? Well, here it is. Here's ground zero. Because I persecuted the church of God. Because I persecuted the church of God. Try carrying that around. Try carrying those images around. So what do you do if you're Paul and it's legit and it's real, it's authentic? He's not perfect. He still makes mistakes. We see them as he continues on in the New Testament. But how do you establish your credibility? Well, prior to this, he establishes it on the fact that Jesus came to the earth. He died for our sins. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended. He appeared to many, many, and he appeared, he says, abnormally to me as one. He's like, I was late to the game. But he appeared to me, and now Paul is going to establish his authority, his credibility upon this beautiful thing. I want you to just look at this with me. He says, like, look, I, I persecuted the church of God, but, I love that, but, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Can you say that today? Whatever has led you maybe in that bathroom stall kind of moment, you might be there right now just going, I've been living the Groundhog's Day story over and over. I've been doing the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and hoping for different results, but now I've locked myself in, and will anyone extend a hand? Maybe you're there. Maybe you've been there, but given... All of the things in our life and all the ways that the body keeps score and the brain won't let us forget. And when you go to those moments in your life, you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. And you just kind of wince and shame like that's still embarrassing. And if people knew, what would it look like to say, by the grace of God, I am who I am. Then he goes on. He actually says this word grace three times. And his grace to me was not without effect. In the words of one scholar, there's this dynamic force to grace, this, this energizing agency to grace. It was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. He's like, this, I didn't just like mail it in. No, I, I co-labored with God, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me three times. How is he going to establish his credibility, the foundation by which he's going to lead others in the way of Jesus? And he's like, well, I had this whole past pedigree of all the ways that I was raised up under the right mentor and born into the right tribe. I did all the right religious things. But then I realized, oh my gosh, I was not working with God. I was working against God. Now, how will I possibly establish that grace? Grace, grace. What is grace? I heard undeserved favor. Yeah, you know, um, Philip Yancey has this great kind of, he wrote a great book on grace, and he says this, grace, when we try to define it, it's a little bit like when we try to understand a frog, we dissect it. And we, we in, in the process, kill the frog in order to understand it. How do we actually, how do we actually explain and unpack grace down to a street-level understanding in a way that makes sense to you and I, in, in, in a way that will shout louder than your shame moments? 
How, how do we do that? You know, I, I did a whole series, this is years ago, I don't know, it was three, four weeks on grace, and I was just loving it. And I got this great email from somebody like, Dan, I'm loving this series, love this, love this, love that, right? And then P.S., the very end, he goes, by the way, what is grace again? I'm like, that's, that's a great question. Because I don't know that grace really works by definition. You have to get into like, what does grace feel like? Grace sounds things like, well, grace is the time when, or grace is kind of like, or grace sounds like, or grace smells like. It's, it's something that, you, that you, you, you tell a story around versus try to define. It's a little bit like playing the game Taboo. Anybody like the game Taboo? It's one of, one of my old-time favorites, you know? If you put the words on the card, like, so here's a grace, here's a grace Taboo card. I just kind of I just kind of made it up so it's not real, but let's just throw it up on the screen. This is the taboo card of grace. There it is, right? And I think we heard the very first answer from someone here. It's unmerited favor, provenient grace. There it is in the Greek, charis. Uh, it's sanctifying, it's forgiveness. Now, how would you describe grace if you couldn't use all the churchy church language? If that was not available to you, and by the way, let's just be honest, do any of those get you pumped up? Let's just talk about provenient grace. <laughs> Woo! We need something better, something grittier, something, like I said, that shouts louder than your shame, something that you take with you, can't let go. I thought about that email. I was like, yeah, how do we really describe this? How different is that than the world in which we were raised? That's your mess. You spill it, you what? You clean it, right? right? Hey, you got yourself in this mess, now you got to what? Get yourself out. I mean, that's the code by which we, we've been raised. It's the code by which we've learned to ascend and climb the ladder, it's like, man, you make your mess. You get out of your mess. But have you ever just had somebody in a moment where you like spill milk all over the table, you drop eggs on the floor, whatever it is, and if you just, have you ever experienced when somebody just quietly, they don't shame you, they don't scold you, they just grab a towel, they get down on their hands and their knees, and they just quietly clean it up. And they say, it's okay, honey. when I have the, the rare opportunity to officiate the weddings of, of couples, and when they say their vows for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, you know what they're really saying to one another? Your mess is mine. Couldn't help but notice nobody wanted to go to the financial class after church today, <laughs> right? And yet, for richer or for poorer, your debt is now mine, right? Anybody uh, engaged to be married? Anybody? Just curious. Online, you can put it in the chat box. No, anybody? Yes? Well, here you have it. This is the wedding homily for you guys. Hey, congratulations. What, what's the date? 10-4. So the October 24. 24. Whoo, you're patient. 
ah, that wedding is going to be planned down with military precision. <laughs> I want to I see that. That's awesome. Uh, I had a moment when you just think about having your, your mess cleaned up. I, had a, I, I played some college baseball, and on a recruiting-like trip um, to the, the college that I ended up going to out in California, um, I was placed with a, the senior captain, the all-star senior captain. His name is Michael Foster. And actually, um, I was staying at his house with his parents. And we went out for, uh, I don't know, Chinese or whatever, and I had stomach issues. So I went into the bathroom. I made a mess. And the toilet overflowed. <laughs> I am not even a freshman in college. He is the all-star captain. To make matters worse, I'm not mechanical. So I panic, like there is just a knob to turn off the water valve. I know that now. <laughs> but it's just overflowing, my mess, overflowing, just overflowing onto like it's on porcelain, it's on the carpet, and it's not just water. Okay, that's all I'm going to give you. I'm sure that's too much already, but I panic. And I want my mom, but I don't have my mom. Who do I have? Michael. So I go out of the bathroom, and in a panic, I'm like, Michael, this is happening. I don't know how to turn it off. And he just calmly, quietly grabs towels, and he gets on his hands and knees and begins to mop up my mess. That's grace. That's grace. Whatever overflows, however you're stuck, in the bathroom stall, I'm going to extend a hand that says, you're okay. It's okay. Why? Because the God of the universe says to you and me, your mess is mine. That was the Apostle Paul's whole kind of thing. He's like, I mean, if I were today in our vernacular, if I were to take what Paul has written here, I would just say, in his words, I was a hot mess. I was just a hot mess before Barnabas came along, before I was blinded by the light of Jesus, I was a hot mess. And then he says this thing that I just think is really important for us to see. Verse 9, he says, I'm the least, right? I don't, and I want you to see this, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. I think there is a, there's a, a kind of a framework that forms a narrative here, which is I don't deserve to because I blank. I don't deserve to blank because I. And I just wanna, I just wanna bring this up. I just want us to look at I don't deserve to because I, what would your, what would your, how would you fill in the blanks here? I think we all get stuck in this kind of narrative. I don't deserve to what? Maybe if you're watching online, maybe it's like, I'll watch online but I'll never go because if I go, they'll, they'll find it out. I don't deserve to, like, it's okay if I'm here, but there's no way I can be there because of what? See how shame sets in? Do you see how it forms a narrative? What would it look like just to say, because of the grace of God, I am what I am? Do you just sense the peace in that? The, the grounding in that. I don't know what it is that holds you back 
I don't know what it is that makes you feel like you have to walk with a limp or kind of stay on the, the edges or the fringes. I don't know what goes on inside of your head that continues to sabotage all the goodness that God would want to do. But I've lived enough life to know it's there in between our two ears. And if we could just all say, yep, yeah, I'm a hot mess too. I'm a hot mess. Anybody else want to join Paul? Going, hot mess, hot mess, right? Okay, hot mess. By the grace of God, I am who I am. By the grace of, say this with me, by the grace of God, I am who I am. Now, if we can just kind of come to grips with that and go, mm, it's there. Happened to me this morning, by the way. I just had a work thing come up in my head. It's like, oh, feeling stress. And I'm like, oh, uh, but God says, your mess is mine. All right. And just kind of felt released in that moment. Now, here's what's cool. Here's what's cool. Is not only do we just name that, you know, we're a hot mess, then we get to see that, that, that the Lord says, no matter the mess in your life. See, the genius of Paul taking a murderer of, uh, excuse me, of Jesus taking a murderer of his church and then elevating him into a place of significant leadership is because you and I, we play the comparison game, don't we? We're just like, well, that person, like, they, they're, they're kind of messed up, but I'm really messed up. So we just, like, compare one to another. So how cool of God to say, here's what I'll do so that no one disqualifies themselves. I'll take the worst of all. What Paul says in a different place, the worst of all sinners. That's me. I'm the hot mess. No one is hotter than me, Paul says. Keep that in context. <laughs> so however you think you're hot, you ever killed somebody within Jesus' church? No. So in the comparison game, guess what? You lose. Which means that grace in all of its extravagance, all of its grit, all of its abundance is available to you, no matter the mess. Now, here's what gets really fun. The greater the mess, the greater the impact. The greater the mess, the greater the impact. See, I think God, in all of his foresight, is looking at Paul and going, man, this guy's a hothead. This guy's a pistol. This guy's all piss and vinegar, right? Now, he can do a lot of damage for me, <laughs> right? He can make a really awesome mess. I can't wait to see what this guy will do across continents if he just got hold of my grace. And if I just took all the things that he's doing in his own kind of like self-absorbed zeal, what, what would it look like? Could you imagine if the grace that, that flows from heaven flowed into his heart, what would that look like? And there's this fun play on words. When he says, when Paul says, I persecuted the church of God, that word persecuted appears in a positive light, actually. And I want you to look. It's, it's found in one of Paul's letters in Philippians. And here's what he says about uh, a bit of his journey using the same word persecuted. Let's just bring this up on the screen. Uh, yeah, so there we see, there's the word, right? He says, I persecuted church. Now let's see how he uses it positively in Philippians. Okay, so now he goes, 
not that I have already obtained all of this. He goes, I haven't figured this out. I'm on the journey. Or that I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on. That word press on, same exact word in the Greek for persecuted. I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Isn't that cool? That you can press on and do a lot of, a lot of damage for, for, for bad. But that same thing, the same wiring, you can actually press on for awesome and for breakthrough. If you feel like a hot mess, the good news for you is like no matter the mess, don't disqualify yourself. Don't live in that because I did this, I don't, uh 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 uh. Look at Paul, you lose in the comparison game. And the bigger the mess, the greater the impact that you can have in the life of others. That's the hope that we have in Jesus.